page 917, the Bibles that we have provided below the seats in front of you. We're in a section of the book of Acts where the gospel is taking ground. We've recently seen how Jesus is claiming believers from the Jews, but more recently, in chapter 8, he's expanding to Samaria, to outsiders, and, and he's getting ready to take the gospel to the nations. A very simplistic way to look at the passage we will look at this morning is is to just think about the question, how does the gospel get to the nations? You'll see at the last verse of chapter 9, how it is that Peter gets to a place called Joppa, which is where he then goes out to preach the gospel to the first Gentile convert, Cornelius. But this this, uh, passage is doing more than that. The Lord is not just moving the story along. This is not just a filler passage. We will learn something significant about our Savior and also our salvation as we pay attention to God's Word at the end of chapter 9. Let's go to the Lord and let us ask Him to bless the hearing of His Word. Oh God, we pray that You would that You would use Your Word. It is living and abiding. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass and the grass withers. And the flower falls. But your word, O Lord, remains forever. Your gospel caused us to be born again, gave us new life out of death. And we pray that you would send out your word again in power, that we might for these minutes listen not to a man and not just to ancient sentences. God, we pray that from on high You would speak and we would hear Your voice. We ask this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please stand at the reading of God's perfect Word for this church today. The Spirit is speaking to Redeemer Church through Acts 9, verse 32 through 43. And He does so because He loves us. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. 
And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence or the gospel truth comes straight out of Peter's words in verse 34. Jesus Christ heals you. The book of Acts has been given us a very clear picture of what salvation is. And this is part of it. Jesus Christ heals you. So a very simple outline. It's really a sentence unpacked in three parts. Jesus heals through His apostles to be trusted. Jesus heals through His apostles to be trusted. Point number one, Jesus heals. One of the ways that I'll remember this Christmas season is the flu. I want us to start out by considering who's to blame for the Young County flu of Christmas 2019. And the answer is obvious. It's dirty kids. It's dirty, uncouth kids spreading sickness all over the place. Now that, you can trace it back further though. And we can trace it all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles. Genesis 2, you remember the one command that God gave to Adam. You can eat of any tree in this garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said in this world that was very good and full of life, there was only one thing that could kill them, and that is not trusting Him, not believing Him, and reaching out for something that He says was for only Him. And they reached out. And God kept His Word. They died immediately spiritually and their body followed. It started from there to decay. This morning I hope you feel very healthy. And I want you to remember this inclination of the human heart 
we adjust to God's blessings very quickly. We can be in a moment of desperation and then some answer comes and we will immediately forget the desperation. We have a habit of taking for granted God's goodness. And this morning from our passage, we're invited to remember our need for healing. Our need for healing. And even if you're not stacking up doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, I want you just to consider how many are going to be making health resolutions this week. There is some understanding, and I want to trace or push it all the way to the end. What I mean is, there is some understanding that you are dying. I am dying right now. Sickness is a siren. It's a siren to wake up those who forget the curse at the beginning of the Bible. It's a siren to wake up those who are not paying attention. Who don't learn what God wants us to learn by the frailty of our bodies. And what that says about this life, this world, and our souls. Every sickness is a symptom. It doesn't just have symptoms to be diagnosed. Every sickness itself is a symptom that we're all dying. So, from the common cold to cancer, from muscle loss to memory loss, all of that is telling us this world is passing away and everyone in it. And the good news of the Gospel includes this message. There is a Son who will save from sickness. So right after... Adam and Eve took of that fruit. In Genesis 3.15, they were given this promise. It was, it was vocalized generally that there would be this Savior, this Messiah, who would one day rescue all of God's people from all of the curse. But that promise starts to be defined as God keeps on speaking such that we get to Isaiah 35. And we hear that when the Messiah, when that Son comes, He will strengthen the weak. He will make firm the feeble. He will open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. The lame are going to leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute is going to sing for joy. That is part of the salvation that He will bring. So that when we come to two stories... With Aeneas and Lydda, a man who is bedridden for eight years. There was nothing in the world that doctors could do for him. When we come to Tabitha at Joppa, who is dead, we are being invited to remember salvation and what the Savior would bring. They are so urgent. Look in verse 38. For... Peter to come. This is obviously the bigger picture of what sickness does. Her illness didn't just take her to the bed. It was about to take her to the grave. And burial was common before sundown. And so they come to Peter. 
and they beg him, come quickly. He's four hours away. They've taken four hours to get to him. And they want him to be there before she's buried. What I want us to see from this passage is what a Savior we have in Jesus and what a God we have in the true God. And I want to encourage us from these stories to never give in to the suspicion of an unbeliever. The suspicion that rests in every one of our hearts, I'm convinced, that God does not care about your suffering or about the suffering of those you love. That is a lie. He cares. So Peter goes on to say, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God whenever you are suffering. And part of being humble is not proudly accusing Him that He does not care. So Peter says, cast your anxieties upon Him because He does care for you. God cares. This is amazing. This is the God we sinned against. We offended Him and He is, from this passage and all over Scripture, offended Not just by our offense of sin, but also offended by a world of death. What has become of this world of life that He has made? And so God in His steadfast love and His faithfulness is devoting Himself to ridding this world of everything hurtful. So that when He says, a son is going to come to save you from the curse, He then explains that also means from every sickness and death. He is committed to ridding this world of everything that harms and everything that steals life and joy. John Calvin put it this way, Jesus Christ does not bring disease to the healthy. Jesus Christ does not bring death to the living. He came to bestow upon us every blessing and to rescue us from the tyranny of Satan and of death, to heal our diseases and sins, and to relieve us from all our miseries. That is our Christ. Verse 39, I want you to see the example of Tabitha, this disciple. The main point is not her character. It's obviously the character of her Savior. But what we see in her is the kind of compassion of her Savior. And when we see that she is learning or is a disciple of Christ, and we look in verse 39, and we see what that ministry is, we see what it means to follow Christ. She is the opposite of Aeneas. Aeneas is bedridden. He is unable to serve anyone but He is served solely by others. But Jesus doesn't just heal those. He also heals those like Tabitha, who, verse 36, is described, don't you want to be described this way, as full of good works and acts of charity. That is who He heals in the second half. Look at this impact this woman has had upon widows. When she dies, they cannot deal with it. They cannot deal with life without her. They're dealing with life without their husbands. But they don't want this woman to be taken from them as well. Tabitha is presented to us like a patron, a person in that 
community who would have committed themselves to the well-being of specific widows in this case. And so we see her doing a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. One, she is meeting the physical needs of these widows. She is making garments for them. But also notice how, how, it's, how it mentions that she was with them. She was with the widows. She was not just ministering to their physical needs. She was ministering to them by her presence. She was spending time with them. And look at how much this looks like the character of Christ. The compassionate and merciful God. Widows have a special place in the priority of God. They've lost their provider and their protector, their life's companion. I do want to draw attention to this, and I want you to consider our sister Debbie and Aunt Mary. And I want you to consider just from Tabitha's example what it might look like to follow Christ in guarding our sisters from loneliness. And and like a patron, taking responsibility for their needs and being with them. That we might show them and remind them of a God who is full of mercy. We can apply this to more than widows. We can pray faithfully for the ministry of mercy ships while the Huff settlers are there. We can pray for the ministry of mercy through foster ministry in Young County. We can pray for our ministry to those in need of the clothes closet. But this is an example that's being held out to us, a woman who is like Christ. And yet that's not the main point. The main thing I think Luke is communicating in Acts chapter 9 is that when we look for the Savior, we should be looking for a healer. In other words, when we see the healer from God, we have found His Savior. And Luke is telling us that and Luke knows this, doesn't he? He knows how good or, or what are the limitations of doctors. He himself is a medical doctor. And he is saying, my Savior is better than any doctor. All the doctors could do with the man who was bedridden was, was prescribe applying oil to his body just to soothe him from the aches that he has periodically. And in the second story... The doctors had obviously come to the, the sentence that we don't want to hear, but that the loved ones of Tabitha had clearly heard. There is nothing more that I can do. And yet Jesus Christ is the answer. He can do more when they cannot. He is the answer for the worst that we are all going to face. This is what Luke is carefully telling us back in chapter 2. He tells us, That Jesus is the one who can rescue you from the penalty of your sin, your guilt before God. Only Jesus can rescue you from the wrath of God. In Acts chapter 9, earlier we saw in the example of Saul, Jesus Christ is the only one who can rescue you from the power of sin, from serving Satan, from being deceived, and acting against God and His people. And here again, Luke is telling us through these stories, That Jesus' salvation is even more complete than that. 
He doesn't just save from the penalty of sin. He doesn't just save from the power of sin. He also saves from the power of death itself. He is turning back every consequence of our failure. Jesus Christ heals you through His apostles. That's point number two. Jesus Christ heals you through His apostles. We need to understand these miraculous healings. This is, when we're looking at the book of Acts, the age of the apostles. We're seeing things that we don't normally see in our day. You know, remember what the ministry of the apostles is. Peter is an apostle. He has been called with a few to spread the word of Christ and to establish the church of Christ. And in order to do that, what we've seen throughout Acts, what we'll continue to see, is that these special men have the power of their Savior on them. They are representing Him in a way that no one else is. So when we come to a paralytic who's bedridden, we're immediately supposed to think of Mark chapter 2 and what Jesus did to the paralytic who was bedridden. When we see this Tabitha, and and in Aramaic, the, the, the phrase that Peter used to raise her would have been Tabitha kum. We should hear the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. Talitha Kumi. Some say identical name. What we're seeing is the apostles of Christ doing the works of Christ. And what is most important, I think, is the words that, that Peter is saying when he's healing. Verse 34, he says, rise. Verse 40, he says, arise. This is intentional, surely. It's the same word that God uses to describe what He did when His Son was dead. He raised Him. Here's the point. I want you to see that every forgiveness, every mercy is based and is rooted in the cross of Christ. There is no such thing as mercy from God apart from killing His Son. And so for years and years and years, that mercy that God was showing to this world and forgiveness He was offering was in trust that His Son would come and die. And everything after is based upon that event that has already happened. There is nothing good a sinner can receive from God apart from the cross. It purchases every kindness from God. And in the same way, Every single healing, large and small, is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus conquered death. And every healing is based upon His conquering of the fullness of what those small sicknesses are symptoms of. If you love healing, you need to know where it comes from. There's a story 
It's maybe the most uh, famous story in the Narnian world. Where there's this white witch who has ruled over Narnia for years. And the quality of your ruler determines the quality of your life. When the white witch was in power, there was only fear, only misery, only ice, no sun. And so the famous phrase is, it was always winter and it was never Christmas. There was never a glimmer of hope under her reign. But if you know the story, you know that once she was defeated, the whole world thawed. When you defeat the enemy, all of their power is undone and everything rolls back. There is no healing that is possible apart from the resurrection. So aspirin would not work. Chemotherapy would never work. These would be placebos if the tomb was not empty. But here's the other truth. All healing is guaranteed by the resurrection. There is a day where there will be no more sickness, where there will be no more death, because Christ has defeated the enemy of death. Peter is is moving toward another border. He's moving toward the nations and this congregation that we'll find in chapter 10. And the power of Christ is going with him. The promises of messianic power are the credentials that that Peter has on him to prove that the one that he's preaching is the promised Messiah. So he comes with this power and these hints and flashes from the empty tomb of the Savior who will make everything right. Now I want you to see When you think about Jesus Christ healing through His apostles, I want you to understand something very clearly. It is a consistent principle throughout the Bible. There is a purpose that God has when He heals. And it may not be what you have considered. Here is the purpose. Here is the principle of God healing those who are sick. It is to cause people to listen to the healer. It is to cause people to listen to the healer. I I just want to give you a a couple of examples. This passage should remind you of, of, of interactions that Elijah and Elisha had. If you're familiar with reading the Bible and what the ways that these prophets did particular healings, there are details in our passage that match that. And I just want to hear you to hear the point of their healings. Back in 1 Kings 17... The woman who receives her son back from death says, Now that you have healed my son, I know you are a man of God, which, which means prophet. That's, that's biblical language for prophet. And I know now that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the purpose of God. When healing comes, the purpose is to listen to the healer. So that when Jesus in Luke 7 healed. A dead man sits up at Jesus' command and begins to speak. Jesus gives this man to his mother. Similar story. 
and fear seizes everyone, and they glorify God. And what do they say? A great prophet. When they see healing, they are interpreting that, that a great prophet has arisen among us. That God has come mainly to speak. Listen. God gave power to His prophets in the Bible. If we're going to understand healing biblically, God gave power to His prophets to get people to listen to their preaching. And that bears true in this passage. You're to heed the words of the hands that heal. It was never just for the healing. It was never just for someone to feel better about having their child back or their friend back. It was always meant to lead people to heed the words of the hands that heal. Jesus Christ heals through His apostles. The last point is to be trusted. To be trusted. Last night we had an opportunity to seek to train our son what it really means to trust the Lord Jesus. So as we were at Cook's Hospital, I sat down on, on the bed with Silas. And I tried imperfectly to call him to tr- trust not me and not his doctors, even though they're great doctors, but to trust in Christ alone. And I wish I had said two things. And that's what I'm going to say to you. Two things about healing. First, turn to Christ alone for healing. Turn to Christ alone for healing. Our passage makes this point very clearly. Look in verse 35. Look at the result of the healing of Aeneas. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw the man who they knew to be bedridden for eight years. And what happened? They turned to the Lord. Obviously, in trust of the Lord. Look at what happens when Tabitha is raised from the dead. Verse 42. It became known throughout all Joppa that she was raised from the dead by Peter. And many believed in the Lord. They listened to the prophet. This is the purpose. When we find healing in Scripture, what we're supposed to hear is the prophecy God promised to send a Savior who would heal. He has sent the healing Savior. The purpose of healing is to trust Jesus Christ for healing. And you're going to face need to be healed. And when you come to that moment, as advanced as our medical practices are, Do not place your trust in doctors. Really. Do not place your trust in surrounding yourself with wise counselors who will help you make decisions about this this approach or this approach. Because everyone else 
lacks the character. And everyone else lacks the competency that should be required of them to be worthy of your trust. They are not competent enough for you to trust. They do not have a kind enough character for you to trust. Here is what God wants. He wants for us what we lost. Trust. That's the problem. It's not the point that it's a piece of fruit or one bite. It's that they didn't trust Him. They didn't believe Him. And the gift is not just a longer life. It's knowing God. It's knowing that He can be trusted. It's knowing His character. It's knowing His competency. All the things that we doubt. All the things that we give to other people. This is salvation. If you are needing mercy... Look no further than the one who did not have blood. But he took on blood so that he might take your place. That's mercy. That's the character we need. If you are needing healing, look no further. Look at no one else but the one who defeated death. That's the competency you need. He alone can be trusted. If you're here and you don't know Christ, consider... You are trusting someone. It may, it may just be yourself. But you can't be trusted. And you need help that you can't give. There is one who is full of kindness. And there is one strong enough for the war. There is one who can defeat and has defeated every enemy. The greatest of whom is the guilt from your sin and the wrath of God to come. Character and competency matter most in who you're going to trust. So turn in faith to Christ alone. If you're a believer, when you get sick, you ask Jesus to heal. You ask Jesus to heal. I don't believe in coincidences. Here we are in this passage where a beloved girl is raised from the dead. And you've probably seen in the news two-year-old Olive who tragically died and how Bethel Church organized worship services and called the nation and world to cry out to God to raise Olive from the dead. And God did not raise her from the dead. What do we do with death? And should we be making requests for resuscitation? Resuscitation. Not resurrection. Resurrection is guaranteed. Tabitha died again. We don't have the sequel at the end of Acts when she got sick again. There, there's no thought of asking again. She died. We've not been encouraged to pray for resuscitation. And I don't think the examples in Scripture of resuscitation are laying out a principle that we should pray 
when someone dies and has been declared dead, that we should ask the Lord to raise them. We haven't been told that we can pray in the name of Jesus expecting that it's going to happen. We have been told that it's been promised that everyone's going to die and then everyone's going to face judgment. This story is to make a point, not to establish a precedent. There's a point that's being made by Tabitha's story. It is that the apostles have power like Jesus to overcome the worst of the fall. That that power is given to apostles as they are spreading the word and establishing the church. And we understand their work is done. The church is established. The word has been spread. When we look at the New Testament and we see these few examples of resuscitations, notice that they are immediate. They're done immediately. There's not a long process. And it is done by the sovereign will of Jesus through His apostles. Even Peter does not heal at will. Look at verse 40. He goes into this room by himself. He's not organizing a megachurch service. And he kneels and he asks the one who can heal to heal. Healing, we have seen, has a purpose of causing us to trust the Lord. And just think of the damage that happens to trust when we cry out for resuscitation and it doesn't happen. Who is to blame for that? Are we not at least tempted to question the kindness of God? Are we not at least tempted to question the faith of loved ones or the fervency of prayers? And yet we've not been asked to ask for it. When you are sick, ask Jesus to heal and wait and trust Him. He knows more and is doing more than you know. And He knows how to get what is best for you. There are some people who stand behind pulpits and say it is God's will in every instance to heal. That is not true. That cannot be true. God is going after more than healing. He's going after trust. And the only way we can prove our trust is if we face the worst and trust. All the apostles are dead. They're all dead. And we will die. But He's the only one who can heal. And we ask Him alone to heal. But we also trust Him. So here's the second thing. Trust Christ unto death. This is what I want you to hear from this passage. What can we do now? This is what I want my son, my children, my church to know. Trust Christ unto death. And that means trust Christ while you're dying. And I want to give you Peter's book on suffering. If you will, turn to 1 Peter. Page 1014 in the Bibles we've provided. 
Because I want, to, I want you to see what this man who heals, who had the power from Christ to heal and raise the dead, what he says to those who are suffering, and it's not asked that God would keep you from dying or resuscitate you when you're dying. He asks for something more and greater. Peter gives three markers on the trail of trust. Three markers on the trail of trust. When you see this in his, in his letter, for those who are in the midst of suffering, we heard earlier from chapter 1, that trials are sent to us from God to test whether we really believe in God. Three things. I want to give you the second one first because the first one's based on the second one. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is a gracious thing, a thing that has come from heaven that, that only happens when God gives you grace. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The second thing is to fill your mind with God. This is what Peter is teaching you. These are three things you can do when you're suffering. Fill your mind with God. We're going to come back to that. The first one then must be empty your mind of the danger. I want you to see... As Peter goes on, he then gives the example of Christ. Verse 23, this is Jesus on the way to the cross. When Jesus was hated or reviled, he did not revile in return. He's giving us what he could have done. When he was hated, when he was suffering unjustly, he didn't hate those who were bringing about the suffering. When he suffered, he didn't make any threats, but he's doing something else. Instead of reviling, instead of Making threats, he's doing something else. This is, the, this is the key, the end of verse 23. But instead of those things, he is entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I believe Peter is saying he's filling his mind with God. He's entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What is he doing when he's hated? What is he doing when he's suffering? He is filling his mind with God. He's emptying his mind of the danger. And what you will be tempted to do when you are suffering unfairly is to think about the faithless circumstances and not to think about the faithful God. You will be tempted, as we apply to healing, you will be obsessed over the disease. You'll look at Google. What's this mean? What's going to happen? You will fill your mind with the disease, or you'll fill your mind with the limits of your caretakers, of your nurses, of your doctors, how they misled you, how they gave you bad advice. That's what you'll fill your mind with. And I want you to see Peter's calling you to do the opposite of that, to empty your mind of those things. Because he's after trust. The second thing we said came earlier, chapter 2, verse 19. Fill your mind with God. This is the longest of the three because this is most directly talking about trust. Healing builds trust, but Peter says that hardship tests trust. In other words, trust is the point. Three things. Fill your mind with God. I believe I may be giving you some of the most practical stuff I give for the rest of my life to you. When you are going through difficulty, number one, fill your mind with God's justice. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, his justice. In other words, fill your mind 
with thinking about how God is going to make every wrong right, even if this sickness ends my life. This is what I want to tell to Silas. This is what I want to tell to everyone. You need to fill your mind. You've got to be focused on the justice of God. He's going to make every wrong right. And that means I can die. Because I believe He's going to make every wrong right. And Jesus is exemplifying that kind of trust because He dies. He doesn't have to threaten. He doesn't have to hate Him. He doesn't have to come down from the cross. He believes God's going to make this right so I can die. He's going to do it after death. Those Christians in Nigeria, they've got to believe this. If they're going to finish in faith. Knowing Jesus does not keep us from suffering, knowing Jesus equips us for suffering. Knowing Jesus makes us able to endure what is impossible otherwise. And we do it by remembering He's promised to make every wrong right and to wipe away every tear and is not in this life. Do you believe it? He's going to make the worst wrong right. He's going to wipe away the most bitter tear. Do you believe it? This is why trials prove faith. And people go through trials and they show they don't have any faith. If you have a living hope, you'll have it when your wishes are killed. You'll have it when the prayers aren't answered. That is a hope that's alive, like a Savior who's alive. Like a Savior who died believing. Number two, Fill your mind with God from chapter 4, verse 19. This is the trail that Peter's clearly leading us down. Let those who suffer according to God's will, that means he brought it, entrust their souls, same language, to a faithful creator while doing good. We'll come back to the doing good. But fill your mind with the creator's faithfulness. He will not neglect his duty to care for you when you need him. He will not neglect it. He is faithful. He's the creator of the stars. Look up at the sky. They're all in place. Here is an ironic hope that maybe you haven't thought about. God said in Genesis 2, on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And he kept his word. He will always keep his word. He will always do what He says. He's faithful. So if He doesn't heal when you ask, when he, if He doesn't heal how you ask, it does not mean He doesn't care or that He won't ever heal. He has promised and He's faithful. I'm going to make all things new. Number three comes from chapter five. The last point on the trail of trust during trials. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Fill your mind with God, the fact that God is gracious. He's just. He is faithful. And He is gracious. Which means there is no hardship that will be heavier than what good He brings from it. 
He's gracious. What we heard this morning is the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours looked and inquired carefully about the Spirit of Christ in them, was indicating about His suffering and subsequent glories. Here is the order. Suffering. Subsequent glories. When you need healing, you need to believe in the God of all grace when He says, verse 10, He said it in chapter 1 as well. This is a little while. You will see this as a little while. No matter how severe the suffering. Our hope is not for a body that can wear out after 100 years. That is not what we're asking the Lord to do. We want a body that will still be going strong after a trillion years. God has promised us far better than a longer life. He's promised us eternal life. He has promised us far more than the best of this world. He has promised us a new world with Him in it. So fill your mind with God. And third, finally and briefly, do good. That comes straight out of chapter 4, verse 19. If you leave what you cannot control to the one who can control it, And if you don't doubt Him, then you will be freed up. You'll be freed up to busy yourself with what He wants from you, which is to do good. For you to pray for those who are caring for you. For you to encourage those who are caring for you while you're sick and you need healing. For you, He wants you to bless those who fail you. Remember competency and character. Sinners and everyone around you when you need help is a sinner who will be selfish and who will not care for you the way that you need to be cared for. It is unnatural for us to care well for others. But listen, listen to me. The only ones who can devastate you are the ones you depended upon. And you were never called to depend upon, rely upon a person. Look to Christ. So if you're devastated by how people aren't caring for you, you have placed your trust in the wrong place. Serve others. This has a wonderful way of not only lifting our eyes off of our trials, but lifting our eyes to the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. In the midst of your weakness, find ways to serve others in need. Jesus Christ heals you. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would take this word and bear fruit. We pray, God, that for everyone here, we would look to you alone for healing. We would know our need for healing. And we would think about the resurrection. And that you would would forbid that any of us, in the midst of that kind of trial, would fall away. Because we've not trusted truly in you. Lord Jesus, claim every ounce of our alliance. We pray this in your name, for your glory. Amen.